go to Acts 13. Acts 13. We are making our way through, little by little. We're, we're getting through the book of Acts. We've been studying it for most of this year, actually. Uh, and so today we're going to be in chapter 13. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one in a seat back around you, and you should be able to open up to the bookmark that's in the Bible, and that should get you at least to the book of Acts, if not right to Acts 13. Um, so in Acts 1, way back in March for us, Jesus tells his disciples, this is the resurrected Jesus, after he has been uh, crucified, he spends three days in the grave, he rises from the dead, defeating sin, death, hell, and the grave, and the resurrected Jesus spends time with his disciples, and he tells them, stay here, because in a few days, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you, and when he does, everything is going to be different. What's going to happen is you are going to go out, my disciples. You are going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and to the ends of the world. I will be with you. The Holy Spirit will be with you, and you will be my witnesses. You will tell people of what you have seen and heard and experienced. And that's really this idea of Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the world. That's really how the book of Acts ends up getting laid out. Chapters 2 through 7 were really focused on the gospel being preached in Jerusalem and in the temple courts. And so it's a lot of time where the church is growing and starting to figure out how do we do this? How do we figure out how to live like Jesus taught us to live even though he's not with us anymore? And so 2 through 7 is Jerusalem. But then in chapter 8, we have the persecution from Saul, and it scatters the Christians all over the place into Judea, into even evil Samaria, where they have their enemies, and they are living and trying to hide out from the persecution. And so they go running, and they leave with only the bare essentials, and the most essential essential that they take with them is the gospel message. And the gospel begins to spread throughout Judea, and even into Samaria, and even into breaking into Gentile cultures. We've seen the last few weeks in chapters 10, 11, and 12, where the gospel is being preached even to the Gentiles. And they're receiving not only the word, but they're receiving the Holy Spirit. And the same way that we saw the Holy Spirit fall on Pentecost for the Jewish believers in chapter 2, later on in chapter 11, the Holy Spirit falls on the Gentile believers in the same way. And throughout that time, we see the church in Antioch gets started, gets planted, and it becomes really a base for the Christian believers. The church in Antioch is planted, and based on where it's located, because it has uh, access to the sea, and because of just the metropolitan nature of the city, it becomes this welcoming presence for all people. All kinds of people are mixed together in this city of Antioch, and between that and the gospel being open and inviting to all people, we see the church begin to take a different shape than it did when it was in Jerusalem. In Antioch, the church is not just Jewish converts, but it's also Gentiles, and it's people from different cultures all coming together. And while some might consider that, well, okay, they're in Antioch, and everybody's traveling to Antioch, so that's the ends of the earth, right? All kinds of different people are hearing the gospel, but that's not quite what Jesus meant. What we read this morning is the beginning of the entry into the ends of the earth for the gospel. It's another turning point in the history of the church. It's the beginning of the planting and growing of churches around the known world. And while we're going to see that it's done by Paul and Barnabas, they're the ones actually putting in the legwork, actually walking and going to these places, the foundation of the spread of the church is built on the gospel message of the good news of Jesus Christ coming to earth, dying on a cross for our sins in our place. Everything that comes after that, everything that happens in chapter 13 all the way to the rest of the book of Acts and beyond even into today, the church is built on the very foundation of the gospel. And that starts with what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to pray and then we will jump into Acts 
13. So please uh, bow your heads and we can uh, pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this opportunity to gather, to worship, to enjoy you, to celebrate you. God, we thank you for uh, our Grace Place volunteers. Lord, we pray as our kids are upstairs learning about you, learning about the truth of who you are and how you love them and care for them. Lord, we pray that um, those truths, the realities of who you are and your love and care for, uh, for all people would break in uh, and sink in deeply into the kids of this church, Lord. We thank you for the volunteers in our Grace Place ministry and the important role they are playing in loving and caring and, and providing for the future foundations, uh, the future generations of the church. Lord, we pray for us this morning as we open your word that you would continue to speak through us and challenge us and convict us as we study this, study this book of Acts. Lord, we come to you this morning having a variety of different weeks, a variety of different mornings even. And Lord, we come to you all wanting to hear from you, wanting to find some rest, find some encouragement, find some challenge, find you. And so, Lord, we pray that you would help us as we come seeking and knocking, that you would show up as you promised that you would, that you would speak to us as we hear from your word this morning. God, we pray for our brothers and sisters at Addison Street Community Church as they worship as well, and we pray for Pastor Will and that community that you would continue to strengthen them and encourage them uh, and build them up, Lord. We thank you for um, the relationship our churches have together, and Lord, we pray that you would continue uh, to do a mighty work and call people to yourself through the ministry of Addison Street. And Lord, here at CF, I pray that you would continue to bind us together, continue to send us those who are searching and longing for rest, searching and longing for something, whether or not they realize what they're looking for is you. God, help us as a community to encourage one another, to build one another up, and to support one another as we strive to grow in becoming more and more like you. God, you have made us to be the lights of the world, but you have not called us to do that as individuals, but rather as a community. And so, Lord, we ask for the boldness to be able to do that together. God, as I preach this morning, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be glorifying to you. We pray these things because of Jesus and in his name. Amen. All right, so we're going to be in Acts 13, starting in verse 1. Now there were in the church of Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menean, a lifelong fan of, a friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. When they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews, and they had John to assist them. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He, he was with the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elymas, the magician, for that is the meaning of his name, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him and said, You son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, full of all deceit and villainy, Will you not stop making crooked the straight paths of the Lord? 
And now behold, the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you will be blind and unable to see the sun for a time. Immediately mist and darkness fell upon him, and he went about seeking people to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed when he saw what had occurred, for he was astonished at the teachings of the Lord. Let's stop there. So as I said, the church in Antioch has become really the central point for the Christian community at this point. It's kind of their hub, right? What Jerusalem was for the Jewish people, Antioch becomes in many ways for the, for the Christians. Without you know, some of the idolatry and some of the things that Jerusalem turned into for the Jewish leaders, Antioch is the central place of meeting and gathering. It is the sending out place. It is really the hub for Christianity at this point. And in the gathering of peoples, it says they had prophets and teachers. And we have a list of some of the men who had these gifts and were using them among the church. And not to get too deep into the weeds, but you have prophets who would receive a word or revelation from God, some kind of new truth or new teaching from God. And then you have the teachers who would take that word or revelation and they would communicate it in such a way that made it more readily acceptable to the people. And so if you're doing like a Venn diagram of prophets, teachers, shepherds, evangelists, you get all the different giftings that we see in Ephesians 4. Like not all prophets are teachers, not all teachers are prophets, but there is some overlap there. And so some of the men listed here are prophets, some of the men listed here are teachers. We see Barnabas, who has been mentioned many times in the book of Acts and is clearly an essential member of the early church leadership. Simeon, who is also called Niger, which means black or dark, many scholars believe he is from Nigeria and was an African believer in the early church. You have Lucius of Cyrene, who we really don't have anything else about other than him being listed here. Menean with a weird piece of information that he grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. And Herod the Tetrarch is the one who beheaded John the Baptist. He is the one who presided over Jesus' trial when he, Jesus has to go before Herod. And he is the uncle of Herod Antipas, who we saw last week in chapter 12. And then you have Saul. And grammatically speaking, the way he is referred to here is that at this point in the church history, he's just listed as a teacher, not just a teacher, but he's listed specifically as a teacher, not as an apostle, not as anything else other than teacher, because this is what he has been primarily doing at this point. And so as they were worshiping and fasting, it says, the Holy Spirit speaks to the prophets and tells them, set apart for me, let go of, send out Barnabas and Saul, because I have important, I have specific jobs for them to do. The people were in the midst of worship and prayer and fasting, and they heard from the Holy Spirit. We ask sometimes, right, especially in studying the book of Acts, why doesn't the Holy Spirit speak more clearly today than he did back then? Why doesn't the Holy Spirit show up more often and do things like he did back then? Well, we get a clear indicator here of how to be more in line, how to be more in tune with the Holy Spirit. Worship, prayer, and fasting. Fasting is putting down, withholding from yourself something from ourselves, not just for the sake of withholding it, but to take on more room in our lives for God. We put something down, we let go of something. Most of the time, fasting in these days meant food. They were letting go, they were not eating with the intentional desire of having that time when those hunger pains would happen, when it was time to eat. Instead of eating, they were sitting and being in prayer. It was making more space for the Spirit to speak. It's taking a pause in the constant conversation to allow the Holy Spirit to speak to us, right? If prayer is the conversation between us and God, if we're constantly talking, if we're constantly going to him over and over and we're never actually just quiet, how are we going to hear from him? Fasting allows us to be quiet. Prayer and fasting go together. Not all prayer needs fasting, but all fasting, biblically speaking, all fasting needs prayer. 
And it is during this prayer and fasting that while they're doing this, they hear from the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit tells them, you need to send Paul, or Saul and Barnabas because I have a job for them. And so they respond as a group with more of the same. They do more fasting and prayer to make sure that this was truly from God, to make sure this is truly what God wanted for them. And then they lay their hands on their brothers, and they pray for them, and they send them out to follow the call of God on their lives. And so we see Barnabas and Saul, and they travel to Seleucia, to Cyprus, to Salamis, to Paphos. It's map day, everybody. I used to have a clicker. It went away. I don't know. It's, it's gone. Oh, you had it? Read to the rescue. There's a little... Oh, look at that. For the win. There's some connection about the teacher knowing exactly where... Um, all right, so we're up here in Antioch, and then from there, they travel to Seleucia, and from here, they travel by boat to the island of Cyprus. They spend time in Salamis. We'll get there in a second. They end up traveling all the way to Paphos, and that's where we're going to end in 13 is Paphos. From here, they're going to journey up into Perga, but that is next week. So if you're really interested in more maps, come back next week because we'll have this one back up. But for right now, they're in Antioch. They go here, and now we're down in Cyprus. Um, And so once they get to Salamis, they stop and they preach the word in the synagogue. They're able to do that. We see that in verse 5. And they're able to do that because the common way of doing service in the synagogues at that time would be that scripture would be read, the the Torah, something from the law uh, would be read, and then something from the prophets would be read. And then basically there would be an open invitation to anyone, any educated man to speak in regards to what was just read of the Torah and the prophets. And so someone with Saul's background, right? Remember, he is a Pharisee of the Pharisees. He, was, he studied under Gamaliel. He's from Jerusalem. He was one of the top Pharisees. He is educated, well-educated, probably better educated than most any other rabbi or, or synagogue leader he's going to run into. Someone with his background, someone with his pedigree, basically has an open invitation anytime he walks into a synagogue to speak. And he uses that reality almost every time he goes into a new city. This would be the standard way of preaching the word for Saul. This would be how he would kind of start in every city he would show up to. He would go into a new city. He would go to a synagogue, preach the gospel to those in attendance, feeling it necessary, as he says in Romans 1, 1, to preach to the Jews first. And in doing so, you would have also in that synagogue mixed, in those people hearing him speak, you would have Gentiles who were either converts to Judaism or God-fearers, like we saw Cornelius was a God-fearer. He wasn't a full part into Judaism, but he was a God-fearer. He was one who followed the laws and kept to the God of Israel. And so you would have this mix of people who would hear Paul teach or Saul teach, and after this, then he would be able to reach out to the Gentiles in the city. Usually what we would see, as we're going to see in this chapter, what would happen is he would preach, word would start to spread, and then they would come looking for him to hear him teach more. And this is the basic pattern we're going to see over and over again throughout the book of Acts. As Paul, as Saul goes on his journeys, we're going to see him over and over again go into a city, preach in the synagogue, and from there, use that influence, use that reputation he has to then reach out to the Gentiles. It's the basic pattern he's going to use over and over again. And so verse 6 says, after a brief stop in Salamis where they're preaching, they continue on throughout the island of Paphos, and it's here they meet a magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus, or Elimas is what Luke calls him. They actually meet this magician because he has somehow attached himself to the proconsul of the area, a man 
named Sergius Paulus. Sergius Paulus has gotten some basic word of the gospel, something about what Paul and Barnabas have been doing gets to him, and he is interested to learn more, and so he asks for some time. He asks for an audience with Saul and Barnabas. A proconsul was responsible for an entire province, so he's probably over all of Cyprus and then more. He speaks and he answers directly to the Roman Senate. He was an important local leader, and they usually have an entourage with them. He did, including this magician, Bar-Jesus. Bar-Jesus, the magician, a Jewish false prophet. That's how Luke describes him. Bar-Jesus means son of Jesus. Not a reference to Bar-Jesus. Um, Jesus was a pretty common name back then. But either way, Luke gives, I think Luke gives us this other name, Elimas. Yes, to tie him to being a magician, a, a uh, one who practices in the occult. But also, I don't think Luke likes calling him son of Jesus, personally. But that's his role as a magician. He is a generic wise man, a court wizard, some with ties to the occult, the demonic, the demonic, superstitious ways, probably could do some tricks, as we've seen, like, way back in Egypt with Pharaoh, where he would have his wise men, things like that. You have this group of people who could do certain things, had certain powers as they were receiving and opening the door into the demonic, and that was this man. And so for all of the intelligence of Sergius Paulus, as Luke, as Luke says, he still had around him this evil pretending to be good and helpful. Luke describes this magician as a false prophet, probably in the sense that he has left Judaism, because he says he is Jewish, he's left Judaism to embrace this demonic undertaking. His power and influence, whatever it may be, was tied to his abilities, his tricks, whatever it is, powers that he could show. His pursuit of evil power from the demonic world, and somehow someone of the nature and caliber of this man will, of course, when he hears that the gospel message, when he gets wind of this message of that Saul and Barnabas are preaching, he wants the proconsul to have nothing to do with that. Because if the proconsul becomes a believer, Elymas is out of a job. He's going to lose his clout. He's going to lose his power. And so out of self-preservation, he tries to dissuade and distract the proconsul away from the faith. And it says in verse 9, But Saul, who was also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him. Saul, who was also called Paul. For those... Um, who have grown up in church and heard a bunch of sermons, at some point you have probably heard some reference to, well, he was Saul and he persecuted the church, and then the road to Damascus happens, Jesus shows up, and then from then on, he's Paul the Christian and Paul the church planner, right? And it was because he became a Christian, and that's why we call him Paul and not Saul anymore. That's not the case, okay? Actually, Paul is just his Roman name. That's, that's it. Saul and Paul, same name, just Paul is his Roman name. And he goes by Paul, and Luke's going to call him Paul basically for the rest of the book, mostly because his goal, his job, his calling that the Holy Spirit has put on him is to go and preach to the Gentiles, is to go and connect with those people who are outside of Judaism. And so as that being his primary ministry, Luke refers to him as Paul most of the way in the book of Acts. And so we see that he looks at this magician intently. The word is to consider to really dwell on, to really focus on this person. And probably through some of the Holy Spirit being in Paul, he, he really gets a sense of who this man is. And with great consideration and being filled with the Holy Spirit, he rebukes him. He rightly calls him out for trying to keep the proconsul from hearing and accepting the gospel. Because he was trying to keep this man in the dark, because he was trying to keep Sergius Paulus in the dark, Paul tells the magician that he will be in literal darkness for a time, something Paul knew, knows all too well. Jesus did the same thing to Paul. 
And so darkness falls on this man and a mist covers him and he has to go try and searching and finding someone to lead him around because he has just gone blind. Verse 12 tells us that after all of this happens, the proconsul believed when he saw what had happened and was amazed by the teachings of the Lord. He heard the truth. He heard the truth of the gospel and he saw the power of that truth at work and he believed. It wasn't just what Paul did to the magician and making him go blind. It was that combined with hearing the gospel message from Paul and Barnabas that led to this man believing. When he saw that it was real, that it mattered, that the gospel actually has an effect, that not only did the message astound him, but the power of the gospel amazed him, and even more so the passion and care that Paul had for this man. Paul wasn't going to let this magician get in the way of Paulus having an opportunity to come to faith. The heart and desire, that love which exhibited itself in anger, also spoke to the importance and truth of the gospel. There is a care and a concern that Paul shows here that Christians, that we should continue to have for the lost, for those who are lacking the truth. There's a great quote by Charles Spurgeon. It's actually up in my office. It says, if sinners be damned, at least let them leap to hell over our dead bodies. And if they perish... Let them perish with our arms wrapped around their knees, imploring them to stay. If hell must be filled, let it be filled in the teeth of our exertions, and let no one go unwarned or unprayed for. That is the passion and the heart that Paul had for this man, and that is the passion and heart that Christians should have for those we know and those we don't know, who we do know don't have Jesus. Paul's response here to Elymas as he considers this man. It might seem a little harsh. It might seem a little intense in regard to the way he deals with this man. But Jesus felt the same way about the disciples keeping people from him. In Mark 10, it says they were bringing children to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them, and the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant with his disciples and said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Jesus always wanted to make himself accessible. Sometimes it was hard because the crowds were so covered with him, but he always wanted to make sure that he was accessible to the people, that they could come and see and hear and learn and have the opportunity to hear the truth. He always wanted to make sure that there were no barriers to what he was preaching, and the kingdom of God had arrived, that forgiveness and salvation had arrived. So now the obvious application point, I think, from these first couple of verses in this chapter For us, I think it's don't be like the magician, right? Don't keep people from hearing the gospel. Don't put up barriers to the gospel for people. And I think the obvious answer for Christians, for those of us who hear that, say, yeah, of course, I would never want to do that. I would never want to put a barrier to someone hearing the gospel. I want people to know Jesus. I want my friends and neighbors to be saved. We would say that we would never intentionally try and keep people from Jesus, and yet we do it. We do it through how we speak and how we act at times, how we treat others. We yell and scream and argue and tweet and subtweet and argue about things that we are against so much for that we lose sight of what we're actually for. Now, I'm not saying, whenever I talk about this, I always want to make the point, we take stands as Christians. We should. We call out injustice. We call out evil. We stand up to oppression. We do those things. We also need to be champions of grace and mercy and reconciliation and redemption and renewal. 
and we need to be able to decide what is something that is going against, what is sinful that we need to take a stand for versus I don't like this, so I'm going to make a big stink about it. We can't just constantly be the people who point out the failures and evils within the world without being willing to do the work to see the change happen because we are the ones who have the power and ability to see the change happen because we are the ones who have the gospel and know truth and, can, and that's the only thing that can change this world. How we react to the world around us, how we engage with the world around us matters. Whether you are for or against any particular political party or politician or agenda or law, the way you talk, the way you act regarding those things sometimes matters even more so than whatever your stance that you hold. Because you represent Christ not just in what you say, but how you say it. Even something as simple as reading something on Facebook, instead of posting and making a conversation or debate public, take it privately. I, this happened to me just a couple days ago. Someone I know posted something, and everything in me, I, I don't tend to get into public things on social media. Nothing good usually happens there. Everything in me wanted to respond. And because I knew the person, I was able to text them and said, and we went back and forth, and hopefully we're going to have an actual conversation because texts can only do so much, but... Take it, to, take it to personal messages. Take it, take it offline. It makes it more of a conversation and less of a public square shouting match. The mark of a mature Christian is a good testimony with those outside of the faith. It's actually a qualification for elders in 1 Timothy 3. So, fellas, if you have any desire to ever be an elder, to ever be a leader in church, what kind of relationship, what kind of reputation do you have with those outside of Christianity? See, the way you live, the way you work, the way you are a neighbor, a friend, a patron of local spots, all of these things matter. People are watching. People are paying attention. Your testimony to those you interact with who aren't Christians matters. The world is watching. Just because you aren't a celebrity, just because you aren't famous, doesn't mean you are insignificant. They're always paying attention. And we, like everybody else, are trying to figure out as we start to come out of this pandemic, how do we engage with the world around us? And as we're about to enter into another political season, the world's watching. How are those Christians going to respond? How are those people who say they follow Jesus, how are they going to act? Are they active? Are they helping? What are they up to? Or are they just yelling a lot? We want to live and engage with people in such a way that we as individuals are not giving them a reason to ignore the gospel. We don't want to put up a barrier to the gospel in the way that we talk and what we talk about. We also have to be careful about even when we talk about the gospel itself. Because too often we try and soften the message of the gospel. We want to make it more appealing, more sleek, kinder, easier to palate, more seeker-friendly is the phrase they use. We've taken the narrow road at times and tried to widen it and add as many lanes as possible. We've taken Jesus, God, in the flesh and tried to manipulate him to be what we want him to be, not what we actually and what others actually need him to be. There are so many that say, you know, I just want, I want the church to be this loving, welcoming place where, you know, we don't need to talk about hell so much. We, we don't need to talk about the sin part as much. You know, God loves us, so let's focus on that. Let's focus on that God loves everybody. Yes, God is love, and he loves everyone. If you are not a believer and you are listening to this and you're here with us, God loves you. I'm so happy you're here. God loves you. Yes and amen. God also says, be holy as I am holy. 
For those who think, well, if I can make the gospel a little bit more palatable, a little easier to digest, then maybe those who wouldn't normally become a Christian, maybe they'll do it. I'm just trying to help, and I know your heart is in the right place. But in doing so, you are presenting a false gospel. So that if they put their faith in that false gospel, and that Jesus that you have made up and created in your own world, you haven't brought them closer to God. Rather, you have put up walls and barriers for them to get to the gospel. You don't come to Jesus fully and completely trusting him because it's cool and trendy. That has never been the case throughout history. Never has that been the model of how things go when it comes to being a follower of God. Noah was not popular when he was talking about repenting from your sins because a flood is coming. Elijah had to hide out in the wilderness for years because he was preaching the truth. Prophet after prophet, judge after judge. We're going to see as we study the rest of the book of Acts, Paul spends most of his life running from town to town, being chased, being tried to be killed because he's preaching truth. They persecute him because of the gospel. Jesus said, follow me, take up your cross, take up your death and follow me. That's not going to get a lot of likes and support. Jesus doesn't need you to address his image. His image is fine. He is the one who gives life. He is the one who gives eternal life. He is the one who died on the cross and rose again, never to die again, to make eternal life with God possible so that we would not experience this full and complete absence of God and the will of God in hell for all of eternity. He's highly esteemed. He's precious and chosen. He's the living and eternal, steady as a rock, king of kings and lord of lords. He doesn't need you to help fix his campaign. There are always going to be those who reject Jesus and reject the gospel. It's the sad reality of the world we live in. There are always going to be those. There were those who met him face to face and walked away. Judas was one of the 12, and he didn't believe. It took Thomas being able to actually take his fingers and put them into the scars for him to believe. It's not up to you to make Jesus and the gospel easier to digest in this world. Jesus doesn't need you to make him relevant. The word is living and active. Jesus and the message of the gospel don't need to be softer or nicer or easier by manipulating the gospel, by trying to minimize the reality of our sin or the seriousness of the cross or the facts of the resurrection is to preach something that isn't the gospel at all, but a false message that will condemn people to hell. Do not hinder other people. Speak truth. Encourage truth and let the Holy Spirit do what he is going to do in their hearts. We cannot be the hindrance to other people hearing the gospel. We need to be the ones, the lights of the world that point people to Jesus. Paul and Barnabas, after having this encounter with Salamis, they end up heading to Antioch in Poseidon, or they end up ending up in uh, Paphos. Excuse me. And Paul was invited to share something after hearing the scriptures read. We already talked about this. He's in the synagogue. We're in verse 13. He's in the synagogues, and he gets invited after hearing the scriptures read. Can you, can you speak a word? Can you speak a word to us, Paul? Man, I wish I knew what text was read that day. I wish I knew what he, what, because he, he preaches this sermon here, and then I wish he knew what his jumping off point was. I mean, it doesn't really matter for Paul, because like he walks into a synagogue at any point in the year, and he knows where he's going to go. He's going to take whatever scripture gets read, and he's going to end up the same place Peter ended up every time he preached. He's going to end up pointing people to Jesus. Because the whole book is about Jesus. And so Paul just says, all right, we're going to go the long way or the short way, but we're getting to Jesus. We're getting to the cross. That's the end goal. And so he addresses in verse 16, he says, 
he addresses those Jews and Gentiles. He says, men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, you God-fearers, you Gentiles who aren't quite Jews yet, all of you who can hear me, listen. But it's interesting that he directly addresses those Gentiles because at this point in history now, there is no separation. There is no preference. There is no holding back from the Gentiles. They are just as willing, just as open to being able to hear the gospel as anyone else. And Paul goes on to give them basically a history lesson. Why? They know their own history. He does it to build credibility because while he has the reputation as being educated, they don't actually know him. And so he shows that he knows what he's talking about and he helps to illuminate these people on, the, on their past in a new way. He knows his audience. He knows the best way to connect with this audience. The best way, if I'm in a synagogue trying to preach to people about Jesus, is to show them that this God that they worship, this God that they follow, this God is the same God that we saw walking. God in the flesh when Jesus was here. And so i got to connect the dots to say, this thing you're so passionate about, it's here. It, it showed up. And he says, God chose our ancestors he got them out of Egypt when they were slaves. He led them through the wilderness. He delivered them to the promised land of Canaan. He sent them judges to help lead and guide them. He sent Samuel and the prophets. The people got mad. They wanted a king. So he gives them a king in Saul. And then that doesn't work out. So he gives them David, the man after his own heart. And it was from the line of David that Jesus, the Savior who was promised, was born. He gives them a very brief rundown of the line of promise. He says, this Jesus was the one that John, who was baptizing people in the wilderness, he proclaimed was coming. He preached of repentance because one greater than him was coming. That was Jesus. Paul tells them in verse 26, he says, brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. The very word of God, the very message of salvation, it was sent to us. It took on flesh. It is Jesus. Those Jewish leaders who didn't or wouldn't or couldn't recognize Jesus, even though they went to the temple every week and they heard the scriptures and they literally knew them backwards and forwards, every week they heard the scriptures read that told of a Messiah that was to come. They missed it. They refused to see Jesus as who he was, as the Messiah. How many here this morning... You hear the message every week. You open the book every week. You sing the songs. You pray the prayers. You read the words, and yet you still don't actually know Jesus. You're still putting up those walls to the message of the gospel and salvation and forgiveness because to accept it would mean to accept help, would mean to say that you're not perfect, would mean to say that you need someone else to be in control, and leading your life is just easier. So you play the part a few hours a week. If that's you this morning, if you're just trying to play a part, I'm begging you, trust Jesus. Trust him. Confess your sins. Repent of your sins and trust that God is good and he loves you because he's good and he loves you. He wants to lead you to paths of righteousness and to help you find rest and to be nourished. Trust that God loves you so much he sent his son to die for you because he did. The leaders refused to see Jesus for who he is and even though they knew he was innocent, they condemned him to death. They killed him on the cross, and they laid him in the tomb. And then go to verse 30. Because verse 30 starts with my favorite phrase in the Bible. What's those first two words in verse 30? I need it a little louder than that. But God. Jesus is hanging on a cross, dying. 
He's dead. He's in a tomb. There's literal darkness in the middle of the afternoon. Everything looks like the bad guys have won. Everything looks like everything good is falling apart. Everything that man has done, the sin and evil and corruption, seems like it has finally reached its breaking point and destroyed the Messiah. But God steps in and raises Christ from the dead. But God shows up. Man does this horrible thing, but God shows up and makes things new. But God raised him from the dead and defeated sin and death and hell and the grave and declared the power and authority of Jesus. Not only did he get raised from the dead, but then Paul says he was around for a while. He showed up for many days to many people. And those people are now witnesses. What he's saying to those in the synagogue is, look, a bunch of people saw Jesus. You can go ask them. A bunch of people. This wasn't just he raised from the dead and two people saw him or claimed to have saw him. No, he showed up to crowds. Many people saw the resurrected Jesus. They were witnesses. You can go ask about it. The message Paul preached in verse 32, the message we still preach today, we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, that he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus. We preach the same message of good news, that God keeps his promises, every one of them, including the one where he promised Adam and Eve that he would send one who was going to go to war with Satan and stomp out the head of that serpent. The promise of hope and life and salvation, the promise that the Holy One wouldn't see corruption. As Paul quotes Psalm 16, again, knowing his audience, he's quoting scripture, he's quoting the Psalms, and he goes to Psalm 16, where it talks about you will not let your Holy One see corruption, meaning earthly sin or eternal death. David wasn't writing about himself there because you could go to David's tomb. He wasn't writing about himself. He eventually dies. He was writing about one greater than himself. And very plainly, Paul brings it home in verse 38. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, Jesus, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses was not bad or evil or wicked. It just wasn't the final thing. It was always meant to be a pointer to something better. The law and the sacrificial system were meant to show us the reality of the situation we find ourselves in. Before the law was given, when the Israelites were just kind of wandering the desert, there was no rules, there was no law. And when the law shows up, it's, it's really, it's, it's not complicated, right? When they get to Mount Sinai, it's not, it, it's the big, you know, the, the law gets, it grows, but originally it's the big ten, right? Don't lie, don't steal, don't kill, don't worship idols. It gets more in-depth than that, but the big ten kind of keep it pretty basic. And as soon as they get the law, it starts to reveal their hearts because quickly after having the law, the Israelites start to learn that they are wicked. They learn, they keep breaking the laws, they keep breaking these commands of God. They continuously, for generations, bump up against and rebel against what God has commanded them to do. See, the law was never meant to save us, it was meant to reveal sin within us. We've talked about it before, the law was meant as the MRI. Something is wrong in your body. You go to the doctor. They get an MRI. You go and you get the scan. The scan doesn't make you better. The scan reveals. The MRI reveals what's wrong with you. The law revealed what was wrong with us. What is wrong with us is our rebel enemy hearts. It reveals our hearts. It points out our need for a savior, for someone to fix what has been broken by sin. Someone to bring life where there is death, who can free us from being trapped as slaves to sin. The law shows us that we are wicked and in need of someone to help us if we are ever going to have a right relationship with God. 
The law doesn't justify. The law doesn't fix things. It doesn't make us innocent in the eyes of God. It doesn't fix the relationship. See, when we talk about the law now, though, we talk about it as this, like, distant thing, right? Like, it's the Old Testament. It's real bloody and gory. We kind of skip over that. Let's get to the Gospels. Let's get to the love and justice. It's Old Testament stuff. It doesn't apply to us anymore, right? We're under grace. We don't have to worry about this anymore. So, yeah, the law doesn't save you. Your stellar church attendance doesn't save you. Your end-of-the-year giving statement doesn't save you. Your involvement in ministries doesn't save you. Your attendance or leading of community groups and Bible studies doesn't save you. Your niceness, your morality, your selflessness, your humility, your kindness, your generosity, it does not, cannot, will not save you. Isaiah 64, 6, the prophet says that our righteous deeds are a polluted garment. That's really fancy, cleaned up language for a lot grosser statement that we don't need to get into this morning. But what he's saying is the very best the shiniest, the prettiest, the most Instagrammable actions and thoughts and ideas that we have, the stuff that we love to tell others about. It's nothing compared to the holiness of God. You are not the exception. You are not the one who's going to stand before God on the day of judgment and be able to bargain and impress your way in with your goodness and how your goodness outweighs your wickedness. No one will be justified by their actions when they stand before God. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone that you are justified. That's why Paul quotes the prophet Habakkuk in verse 41, where he says, look, I'm doing something new, something you wouldn't even believe is happening. Jews and Gentiles coming together, no one at that time could have believed it. The idea that God was creating a new community, a new people with a new identity, a community that included the lifelong religious churchgoer, living shoulder to shoulder, engaged deeply in relationship with the liars and the cheaters, those lacking morality, those who have been at times not only anti-God, but actively trying to attack the church. But through the blood of Christ, all of them equal, all of them forgiven, all of them made new and made to be brothers and sisters in this community. Is it easy? No, it's messy and hard. That's why we have most of the New Testament, because Paul is writing to these churches trying to figure it out. Is it easy today? No, it's still messy and hard. We're still trying to figure it out. But the church has removed this hierarchy of importance through the blood of Christ. This idea of gender or financial status or bloodline being this hierarchy of importance to God, that's gone. For those who refuse the gift of grace, though, Paul says this offer of forgiveness, this entrance into the kingdom of God, you're going to be astounded and perish at what happens. There is a real consequence to your actions here and now that have eternal ramifications. Because the church is to be a place where it doesn't matter who you are or where you are from or what you are battling. This is to be a place of rest and healing and hope and acceptance and community. It doesn't mean we all just allow one another to pursue the things that are against God and his will and just say, it's fine, it's no big deal, there's grace, you're forgiven. Jesus met with sinners. Jesus dined with sinners. But he calls them to repent. He calls them to live a new life, right? He tells the woman caught in adultery, go and sin no more. Go live into the new life of forgiveness. And so we call each other to that standard of pursuing Christ in all that we are doing, to pursuing holiness in how we are living. And when we fail, when we sin, we remind each other there is grace to be had. We help each other turn from our sin and we get back to pursuing Christ together. We don't cast each other out for every sin. We don't declare someone unclean, untouchable, unwelcome because it's too hard to love them because they struggle too much. 
We don't only engage with the people who it's easy to love, the cleaned up, respectable church folk. The church is for all people in all walks of life. There is grace and mercy and love and forgiveness offered to all people through Christ. In Christ, there's an entire shift. In the gospel, there's an entire shift in the social constructs of humanity that existed before Jesus and the cross and after. And that's what the church is building. These truths, these realities that Paul was preaching, this blew people's minds. We see in verse 42, it says they went out, after he preaches this message, they went out and the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. Paul and Barnabas, come back. Because you took this thing that I've known my whole life, you took these scriptures, you took these messages that I've known my whole life, that I know and I've been memorized and I've heard and listened to, and and you just totally connected dots in a way that I, I... it's changing everything. I need more. i got to hear more. Come back and preach these things more the next week. And it says, many turn to Christ and begin to live into the grace of God after hearing this message. The gospel was preached and offered to new life and forgiveness and community and rest was offered. And the Holy Spirit convicted people and called people to God and they believed. And word starts to travel around over the next week that lives were being changed. That people were leaving Judaism, that people were leaving their idols, leaving their previous ways of life, and instead choosing to put their faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. By the next week, it says the whole city was gathered to hear this message preached again. Some who had already believed want to hear more, and many who were curious about what they had seen and heard over the last week, the changes they are seeing in people's lives. And so again, We see that Paul preached, and what did he preach in this message? I I tried to summarize it as best I could, but Paul doesn't change or soften or dilute the message of the gospel. He preached truth. He preached Jesus and him crucified, the exclusive, messy, hard truth of the gospel, and the entire city gets turned upside down because the gospel got preached. Stay true to what you know, Christian. Be true and... Speak the truth, speak the gospel, and the Holy Spirit will do the work. The Holy Spirit will do the work through the gospel preached. That's how it's always happened. That should be a freeing reality for us. It is not on you to save anyone. It is on you to proclaim the gospel, to tell people what you know, to tell people what you have experienced, and the Holy Spirit's going to do the work. And as we've seen throughout the book of Acts, if you've been studying it with us, that the gospel is continues to go forward. The, con- the gospel continues to knock down walls and barriers. And as it is preached and as lives are changed, there is always opposition to it. It says the crowds gathered and it made the Jewish leaders jealous. Why weren't the crowds showing up for us? We had temple time this morning and there was like a third of this crowd. Where? Why isn't the whole city coming when we teach? Why isn't the whole city showing up for what we're doing? Why aren't we as popular as them? And rather than asking real questions or listening or learning or trying to understand what Paul and Barnabas were teaching, instead they just start a smear campaign and start trying to cut down Paul and Barnabas. They try to discredit and dismiss them and their message. Paul tells the people, look, we're in a new era. One in which the Gentiles have been invited into the family of God to hear the gospel message and believe this isn't just about God and the Israelites anymore. This is about all people being welcomed into the kingdom of God. And the word spread throughout the whole region, and the gospel continues to change lives. And this chapter ends with 
what is another part of reoccurring system that we're going to see in Paul's ministry. Paul shows up to these cities, he preaches in the synagogues, then he preaches to the Gentiles. People get mad at him, they try to hurt him, they try to arrest him and kill him, and so he leaves town before they can catch him. That's what happens here. They try to attack him and they run off. They shook off the dust, it says in verse 50 and 51. Verse 50, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Even as this happens, as they're being driven out of the city for fear of their lives, they have to go across the region. Those who have put their faith in Christ were filled with joy and the Holy Spirit. For as long, I said it last week, for as long as God has had a people, there has been opposition to that people. And for as long as there has been opposition, God has been delivering and defending his chosen ones. And when Jesus entered the scene, when he begins to preach and live out the good news of the arrival of the kingdom of God, there was opposition. That opposition led to Jesus' death on a cross, which seemed to be the worst, darkest, most evil day in history, but it wasn't. There's a reason we call it Good Friday. Jesus is God, and when he lived, he was God in the flesh. He was perfect and sinless, and so his death became the ultimate perfect sacrifice to God for us. He became a sacrifice on our behalf. He took the place and served our guilty sentence so that now we don't have to. As Paul writes it in 2 Corinthians 5, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It is faith in Jesus and him alone that we gave this innocent, justified standing before God. That standing is not because of us. It's not because of how impressive we are. It's not that we won something or that we're good enough. It's because of Jesus. He gives us his right standing, his innocence, his blamelessness. Our standing with God, our relationship with God is founded and grounded in the person and work of Jesus Christ, not us. But that right standing with God, that welcoming into the family of God, did not eradicate the opposition. There continues still today opposition to the gospel and to the church. And it will continue until Christ comes back. But that should not stop or quench our joy or remind us or remember us, stop us from remembering that we are filled with the Holy Spirit, that he is with us and for us. Because there has been opposition since day one, but ultimately the foundation the spread and continuation of the church doesn't rest on my shoulders, doesn't rest on your shoulders. It's not about how many people we can fit into any one building or how many programs or how many Bible studies we can start. Ultimately, the gospel will continue to go forward. The church will be strengthened because of and by, not people, but by the work and person of Jesus Christ. It's not built on us. It's not built on our impressiveness. God in the flesh who died for our sins and rose again, displaying his absolute power and authority over all things. He offers us forgiveness and new life for those who would believe here, now, and into eternity. The gospel doesn't need us. It doesn't need our edits and our refreshing and our filters to make it likable. The gospel just calls us to share the truth with the world so that they can come to know the power and work of the gospel in their own lives and experience that grace and acceptance into the family of God. As the old hymn says, it is on Christ, the solid rock, that we stand. All other ground is sinking sand. So brothers and sisters, let us stand firm in the hope and joy of the gospel and invite others to do the same.
Let's pray. God, you don't you don't need us, but you call us. And you equip us and you complete us. You invite us to be part of what you are doing in this world. And you do that by telling us and calling us to share what we know, to share of the life-giving, life-changing work of Jesus. To not just share it, but to live like we believe it. To live in light of it. To live daily as people who have joy. Joy that can't be taken by circumstances, but joy in the trust and hope that we have in you. God, make us a people that are bold. Make us a people that trust in what we believe, that don't feel the need to nuance and argue and manipulate the gospel, but are willing to share the truth of what we know with others. The angel said it, Paul said it, it is a message of good news of great joy. The Savior has come. The Savior lived, the Savior died, the Savior rose again, never to taste death again. That's good news of great joy, Lord. Help us to treat it as such. Not as this thing about our personality, not as this thing that we can't bring up with friends and family and co-workers for fear of alienation or arguments, but to remember that we have good news of great joy that's worth sharing. God, give us hearts for people that are lost. Give us a passion for those people who are lost, who don't know you, who are still wandering in darkness, looking for help, looking for someone to lead them, looking for somebody to keep them from from them getting themselves hurt. God, you said that we are the lights of the world. You wouldn't call us to do that, to be that, if you weren't also going to equip us. And we have the Holy Spirit. We have that power in and with us and through us. Lord, help us to listen better. Help us to hear when the Holy Spirit tells us to move and give us the boldness to take those steps when he does to step into those moments where we can share the good news of the gospel with others so that they could come to know you as Father, as King, as Lord, as the Comforter and Protector, all the, all the things, all the ways that you reveal your character, the goodness and righteousness of you. God, we live in a dark and broken world. Help us to be the lights you've made us to be because we can't do it on our own. Help us to live in light of this great news of the gospel that we love and cherish so deeply. We thank you and praise you. Amen.